You're listening to Spice Radio, 1200 AM's The Morning Buzz, and we are speaking to Margareta Dovgal, Managing Director at Resource Work Society. And this week's topic is BC climate policy and what the BC government should be doing to manage impacts on competitiveness, plus the inexplicable reason why a daycare in one Vancouver neighborhood was rejected. Margareta, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, my Karen. Great to be here. Would you explain what the BC government has been doing on the climate policy front lately? The BC NDP is uh, doing a very, very uh, impressive job of trying to walk a very careful line between championing climate action and enabling major industrial projects to proceed. And, uh, of course, it's a very important priority, uh, particularly on the sustainability front. Uh, We are facing the impacts of climate change in an unprecedented way. Uh, Everywhere you look, uh, there are stories of floods and extreme heat. Uh, You know, the world is warming at an average rate. Uh, We're about a... Celsius on average higher than we were in pre-industrial times at present, um, but the impacts of that are felt uh, much more starkly on land, um, because of course land uh, retains heat a lot more than water does, um, and as the temperature continues to go up uh, because of the impacts of uh, human activities and emissions, uh, we will see greater impacts um, as climate change unfolds. Um, so that creates quite a challenge. We are an energy-dependent civilization. Uh, we use a tremendous amount of uh, products that are emitting to do that, and we use them for every aspect of everyday life, uh, whether it's the fuel that you put in your car that's used to power your bus uh, in many places in the world, except for BC, which has a lot of hydro. Uh, a lot of the electricity that you consume at home and at work uh, also comes from fossil fuels. And, of course, it's used in manufacturing all kinds of products. Um, the world recognizes the seriousness and urgency of the threat of climate change. So uh, jurisdictions like British Columbia have taken some serious measures to reduce these emissions, uh, which brings us, of course, to uh, what's happening in B.C. right now. Uh, and ultimately, whether you think the B.C. government right now is landing on the right balance, uh, it depends on your values. Um, I would say that um, there's absolutely a need to reduce emissions where feasible. Uh, we do continue to need economic growth. And uh, we need that to maintain jobs, prosperity, tax revenues, opportunities for people, uh, entrepreneurs, small businesses, uh, and communities, uh, especially Indigenous ones that are uh, pursuing projects like ones in liquefied natural gas to really get a head start on the economic development they really need. Um, And I would say in a general sense, uh, if you value those kinds of things, and you want Canada to be well-positioned to provide the world with cleaner burning fuels to drive energy transition, then you know you might think that the government isn't making the case for continued private investment in energy production strongly enough. Uh, back in March, there was the approval of Cedar LNG, which is a Heisler Nation-led export project, uh, and that was actually bundled with the announcement of the government's new energy action framework uh, that tries to essentially chart a path to net zero emissions by 2030, production of liquefied natural gas. Uh, it's, of course, a very important industry for BC and a rapidly growing one. We're uh, just a couple of years away now from our first major export project, LNG Canada, uh, being built and ready to operate. Um, but over the last couple of months, government has announced several, uh, four recently, uh, climate policies and consultations. And what we're hearing from industry is that they are somewhat inconsistent, uh, they don't work well together, and they may actually put quite a damper on investment uh, because it's not only the provincial rules that matter here, the federal government is also bringing in some of their own. Uh, you know, August 15th, uh, the consultation period for the net zero new industry intention paper closed, uh, the output-based pricing system, uh, another consultation uh, that's closing September 6th, 
Uh, they put out a technical backgrounder on benchmarks for that, and that's something that industry had asked for to uh, increase the competitiveness of British Columbia under all of these measures, uh, given the fact that we export our products to uh, other jurisdictions. Uh, on top of that, there's the oil and gas emission cap, a very controversial one. That's, uh, the policy for that is uh, closing consultation October 24th, and then uh, earlier in the year, the BC methane regulations uh, were also under review. So it's a, quite a bundle of different things going on right now, and there are some serious concerns about our ability to keep attracting the private dollars on which our economic growth depends. And what are the likely impacts of this approach? Well, there's a term that energy economists and uh, experts, Peter Trudzakian, um, who uh, is from Calgary and uh, ResourceWorks has actually hosted him uh, in the past, uh, most recently at lunch last fall, um, he calls it the pancaking effect, um, where policies from different jurisdictions, like provincial, federal, um, in some cases international rules as well, uh, start to really stack up. And if they're not reconciled with each other, they don't make sense consistently and cohesively, uh, jurisdictions that add additional rules might actually put those industries at a disadvantage because you're selling products to global markets. So you're not setting the price for what you sell. You're responding to what other sellers are putting out there into the market and what, in turn, buyers are willing to pay uh, based on what they perceive the market price to be. Um, so if the price for, let's say, a barrel of oil or uh, a load of an LNG tanker uh, is fairly constant, but you're adding costs uh, through many more uh, restrictions and rules on how this product can be produced, uh, you're actually reducing the case for these investment dollars to flow into your jurisdiction. Um, and I would say it's fair to characterize um, the cumulative impact of all of these policies as presenting a major risk to competitiveness in the province. Um, and I think it's important for government to think really closely and carefully, uh, you know, consider pausing the implementation of some of these policies uh, to work on ensuring that BC remains competitive and open to investment. We need that if we want to have consistent, stable uh, job creation, economic opportunity, and the realization of this generational opportunity that we have through uh, the export of liquefied natural gas to markets in Asia, uh, including countries like Japan and Korea. Because otherwise, those uh, jobs, those opportunities are just going to go to places like Texas. They're going to go to Australia and Qatar. Um, and, you know, that's great for uh, the Australians. Uh, that's great for the Texans. Uh, but it would be a real disadvantage and a real disappointment if um, British Columbians didn't get to benefit from that demand that exists in the world for this clean burning fuel. And in another story that's been sweeping social media this week, the city of Vancouver has been getting flack for rejecting a proposal to add spaces to an existing daycare facility. Walk us through that controversy. Yeah, it's been a really interesting one to watch. Uh, Social media has just exploded on this, and it all follows an article by the journalist Dan Fumano, um, who's been tracking issues in the city for a number of years. And uh, Dan uh, describes um, the addition of a second floor uh, to an existing daycare facility in Douglas Park, a Vancouver neighborhood, um, and how a number of neighbors who hate the sound of children playing, you know, what a terrible sound that is, right, um, successfully um, petitioned the city. They went to a number of hearings about this uh, uh, proposed expansion for eight spaces, that's, you know, eight children potentially playing in the neighborhood for a couple of hours a day, uh, you know, maybe not even that many hours a day. Um, and they actually kiboshed the proposal. City staff uh, listened uh, to the NIMBYs who said, not in my backyard, Buster. And uh, they said no to this. Uh, and this is at a time when we have just an unprecedented need for childcare capacity 
Uh, we're, we're in dire need of this. Many families are waiting for years on wait lists to get their kids into care uh, so that mothers and fathers can uh, be active in this very, very hot labor market that we have. Um, but these staff said no. Um, and everyone's just, you know, up in arms about this. Uh, many elected city councillors are incredibly disappointed in this decision. But I think it speaks to a broader, more systemic issue that we're struggling right now to reconcile the needs of our growing city and our growing region uh, with, you know, public acceptability um, and uh, tolerance uh, for growth and building and and expansion. Um, and I think that's a deeper structural issue that affects areas like housing as well. Now, you've put a fun little poll on social media. Who or what deserves more scorn? The neighbors who complained about the daycare, the city staff who rejected the application, or the rules that allow much-needed child care and housing. So what's your take on it? Now, I have a good amount of animosity for uh, NIMBYs, <laughs> including ones who uh, literally hate the sound of joyful children. Uh, enough to say, not in my backyard, Buster, uh, and uh, lead a hateful campaign to block much-needed daycare space uh, in the city where, you know, some families are spending years on wait lists. Um, you know, if, if you want a, an idyllic rural setting, move to Pemberton or Williams Lake or literally anywhere except for the biggest city in this province a rapidly growing city. Um, you know, that's one piece of the, the puzzle, certainly. And uh, so far, the results I'm seeing on uh, my channels uh, sort of suggest that uh, more people are annoyed at the neighbors. Uh, it sounds like it was only a handful of them, so that's an important piece. Uh, now, for the staff, um, I, I think there's generally a disconnect right now between, between council and city staff. And we're, I'm hearing this from a lot of people. Um, you know, council wants to build more housing. They want to... Uh, fix some of the safety issues that are really, really affecting um, livability in the city and sense of safety that the people experience just walking around places, especially downtown, let's be honest. Um, but the ability to move through proposals, including ones that require big change, big transformation, um, and this is true for other governments, not just, not just this one, uh, routinely gets blocked or you know, change so substantively that the intent of uh, whatever policy change is being considered uh, doesn't really get fully realized. Um, and uh, that's true for building more housing. Uh, you know, proposals uh, from political level go to city staff. Uh, they get totally changed and flipped. Come back to council. Council says, okay, fine, I guess we'll pass it. Um, and then the policy outcome is not what we want. Um, so that's a structural issue that needs a lot of work. The culture of the city obviously uh, needs to respond to the change in political will and, uh, of course, what the electorate and the people who live in the city actually want to see as the outcome. Uh, but then finally, I, I think this is really the one where I personally believe the bulk of the, the scorn or disappointment should be directed at. It's the rules. And uh, those rules come out of something that happened 50 years ago. Uh, since the 1970s, in fact, the city of Vancouver, like many municipalities across the country, uh, has made a point of banning growth. And, you know, that was almost essentially a literal policy. Uh, we went from enjoying a surge of construction with peaks in building homes, for example, that we haven't replicated even today, 50 years later, to practically no new homes getting approved anywhere. And, you know, this freeze on growth had a decadal chilling effect. Uh, shaping generations of city planners and municipal bureaucrats whose function became to, I think, effectively kill everything good, fun, or necessary. Um, so it's a, a very unfortunate place we have found ourselves in. Um, the public consultation processes that we have developed, which came out of this desire to not let anything get built, uh, actually create a lot of loopholes 
uh, for people who are uninterested in the idea of uh, us actually being able to, you know, have kids and to, to have uh, a growing young population. Um, these rules are having that effect of enabling those views to take priority over the urgency and the need of which we need to get building. We need to build more childcare. We need to build more homes. We need to build more industrial projects so people can have jobs and economic opportunities. Uh, all of these things need to happen, and we need to work actively across jurisdictions, across different levels of government, to create an environment where we can get to the outcomes that we want. Um, so I continue to push for these issues, whether it's you know very local or very global, uh, and I hope that everyone who's listening to this will join me in just asking for more, asking for better from our decision makers. I think that's a really good point there, Margareta. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. You take care. Thank you. You too.